Very good. Um, <clears throat> um, and just before I start, I will reference these books in a little bit, but I'm going to encourage you to use these books through the series. But I have three for free. So who would like one? Hey, who would like? Okay, Wendy, your hand was very, very sharp. There we go. Uh, anyone? I've got to be even on this side. Okay, I'm not going to look. Please forgive me if this hits you. Just there you go. Oh. Did you get it, Fion? Ah, oh, there you go. One more, one more. Who wants one? There you go. Oh. Thank you. I didn't throw that one directly at all. Um, anyway, don't, don't look at the book now. Be distracted. I'll explain um, in a little while. So as Carl said, nearly stole the preach. Um, we are doing 15 weeks in the book of Ephesians. Now, I don't know if that fills you with delight or dread. Um, hopefully with excitement and with anticipation. Um, so we call Ephesians a book, if you're a bit new to Christianity or faith, but it's actually a letter in the library of the Bible. So a lot of the New Testament, particularly, are letters written by Christian leaders to local churches. And it's called Ephesians because it was a letter written to the Christians in Ephesus. Um, and much of the New Testament is made up of these letters to local churches addressing concerns or particular issues in those churches. But the truths that come out are very timely and helpful for us. So we're going to be taking 15 weeks and we're going to be doing it in two parts. Ephesians really has two main sections to this. Chapters 1 to 3 are what we're calling transformed life. And then chapters 4 to 6 we're calling transformed living. And these are the books. I want you to encourage you to get these books. You can get them secondhand. The ones I've given you might have names or marks in them because we got a bunch of secondhand ones, but they're a few quid or for new, I think they're about 10 pounds. They're written by someone called Dave Smith. And the series is not following them exactly, but they are short daily devotionals that will really feed your soul. And there will be alignments along with the series. So if you want to get the most out of this series, get one of these books. Um, and if you really can't afford them, please come speak to us or send an email to the office and we'll, we'll get you one. Um, get these books and daily follow through the devotions of them. So chapters 1 to 3 are about transformed life. Really, they're the story about who God is and what God has done and who we now are. So that's the gospel story. And then chapters 4 to 6, which we call in transformed living, is then really about the fruit of that life. It's about what we now do as a result or what the effect of that life is. And it's important to have things in that order, isn't it? If we tell you how to live and we don't give you the life and the power to do so, it's unhelpful. But when you find out how God has transformed us and what he has done for us and in us, you're then shown how to outwork that. Because the fruit of that life is you asking, God, what now? And then he shows you. And so it's important that you have that, that way around. So that's how we are going about this series. It will be seamless, but at some point we'll let you know, kind of obviously when we hit chapter 4, that we are getting into it. Um, and so if you do want to make the most of this series, I want to urge you to do three things. <clears throat> the first one is read Ephesians yourself. Okay, so number one, maybe sit down and do a, a read-through of the whole book initially, and then each week, what we preach on on the Sunday, take those verses and just spend that week marinating in them, reading them over and over again, and praying into them alongside, um, as I said, the devotional, which would be the, other, the second thing to make the most of it is get that devotional, or at least shape your devotionals around this so you don't just take a Sunday and forget about it, but it actually becomes part of who we are. And then the third thing I'd say is get in a life group. So our life groups start the next term, this coming week. These are small midweek groups in the church that we would see as absolutely vital for us growing in these things. So you're not just discovering these things yourself. You're not just working out the challenges and opportunities yourself, but you've got people around 
who you can hear about what they've learned, what they're learning, and they can support you. So if you haven't signed up to a life group and you call Redeemer Home, we really want to encourage you to do so. Just head to our website, forward slash life groups or the hub, and you can do that, and you can journey along with others. And if, for whatever reason, you can't do that, I want to encourage you, at least ask a few people in church, hey, can we go along with this together? even if it's outside, as it were, the life group kind of sets up. So we're really excited about this series, and I trust it'll be very, very fruitful. Often folks in the generation before me, when they were um, discovering church life, they would say that their, their Bibles would fall open in Ephesians because there's so many truths of our identity and actually what church life is like that for them was so precious and that for us we kind of take for granted so when I was out in Croatia, some of the things we take for granted in church life, what we have the convictions of team leadership, everybody in ministry, apostles and prophets, a lot of that's quite new to them. They've got a model where there's one senior pastor dude who does everything and no one else does everything and they're the word of authority and you just do what they say and what they say goes and stuff we take for granted. Um, so let us mine Ephesians for these things. But I'm going to pray and then we'll start <clears throat> diving in a little bit more to the scripture. Lord Jesus, we love you. What a joy to worship you and <clears throat> start to lose our voices because we're singing songs of, songs of praise. And I pray this morning you'd, you'd help me to be faithful to your word and fruitful in communicating it. Um, but I pray for all of our hearts now. You'd soften our hearts. You'd help us to receive the word of God with anticipation and faith and expectation that you would do us good. Help us where we're stubborn. Help us where we're hurt. Help us where we're blind. And encourage us where we rejoice in these things already. And everybody said? Amen. Oh, man. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you are at Ephesians chapter 1. Today is very much an introductory preach. So we're going to look at the first two verses. Um, and then I'm going to give a little bit of context and then I'm going to talk about three key things that we're going to kind of see as a thread through at least the first part of Ephesians. So the, 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 the letter starts like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people, or some translations would say, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we could spend a mini-series just preaching on some of the, the things in these verses, but we're just going to give a bit of context, as I said. So the first thing, obviously, is that Paul is writing to people in a particular place, um, and we'll be able to use some of the truths he had, but it's helpful to understand that particular place. So Ephesus was the city. Um, it was a world-class city in its day. Has anyone ever been to Ephesus or where it was? A few people. It was a world-class city in its day. It had a very powerful identity. It was a port or it was a harbor city. It was Rome's capital of the province of Asia. So not Asia as we know it now, but where uh, modern-day Turkey would be. And it was quite a mixed place. It was home to many Greeks and obviously Romans. And it had a big Jewish settlement there was a medical library, apparently, and a, a college, and a medical college, and a library, an underground sewage system, which obviously was state of the art. Um, and uh, historians would tell us that there were many huge mansions, and that there were uh, some amphitheaters, and some were basically the size of, I'm sorry, Colchesterians, Portman Roads, which is the football stadium up in Ipswich. Any supporters in here of Ipswich? Lord Jesus, we just pray for them. <laughs> Uh, we have some guests from Hope Church in Ipswich today. Nice to have you guys with us. Uh, or twice the size of the stadium in Colchester. 
Um, so about 25,000. Um, so it was a powerful city with a very powerful and influential culture. It was beautiful. It was multi-ethnic. It was wealthy, but obviously there would have been poverty as well. And it was very pluralistic, which means there was a real sense of many faiths, many religions, lots of belief. And uh, that was quite accepted and normal to have this diversity, much like our culture is pluralistic. There's lots of faiths and beliefs going on. And there was a sense of, well, if that's true for you, great, this is true for me, which is a lot like our culture at the moment. Um, but there was, in the midst of all of these gods and religions, there was one primary or at least dominant um, kind of sense of worship, and that was to the goddess Artemis. Can you say Artemis? Um, and so in the midst of this, this the, the worship of Artemis was particularly um, dominant in that. And uh, Artemis was considered the goddess of the moon, virgin mother of heaven, the protector of nature and animals, and the giver of fertility. So you can imagine what something about worship of Artemis might have led to. And uh, many Ephesians had little shrines and little silver statues to the, to the goddess of Artemis. It was a massive industry in silver, and people would go around singing, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So can we do that together? One, two, three. Great is, you're not sure whether you should do that in church, are you? <laughs> we could have said greater is Jesus. Well done for your hesitation. Um, so that's the setting of uh, Ephesus, okay? So you've got this bustling cultural city, pluralistic, lots of religion and belief. And so now we're going to jump to Acts chapter 19, and we're just going to see how the church was started in that setting. So if you do have your Bibles, you might want to turn there with me, or it will be up on the screen as well. So we're going to lead, read quite a lot of Scripture, and we're just going to help set the scene and allow us to understand as we read Ephesians kind of what it's written into. So the city of Ephesus, and this is how the church started that Paul is now writing to, Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Okay, so he's traveling and he finds these people who believe in Jesus. Um, and then he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them, no, they pride. We haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. So he finds these believers, and they've had some kind of foundation awareness, but clearly it's not you know, the full picture. It's not quite a robust foundation. So Paul proceeds to root them in the gospel and to help them see some more things about what God's done in them. And we pick it up in verse 5. And as soon as they heard this, as soon as they heard this, not delayed, that's important, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they got baptized in water. Then Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they all, then they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. So it's just, that, that, that would be a normal Christian birth. You hear about Jesus, you get baptized in water, you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you start, this life starts to flow out of you, often in tongues, speaking other languages, often in prophecy, because you've caught God's heart, it, it comes out of you. Okay, this, this is the normal Christian birth, and for many of us, We've had part of the picture, like some of these believers. We've been told the Holy Spirit, it just happens, okay? Uh, or, or, or it's just, you know, you, you get everything when you just say yes to Jesus. And don't worry about water baptism because, you know, this happened to you. you, know? and, you know, this is the normal Christian birth. You get baptized, you get filled, you signify that you've died and you've come alive, and then you get filled with this life that overflows. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so that's how things started. Remember, there were just 12 of them at this stage. And then verses 8 to 10. So this is how Paul went about things. He went to the synagogue, kind of the Jewish establishment there, and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Even though he argued persuasively, some became stubborn. Can you say stubborn? 
rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So uh, Christianity, you know, Christians was used as a derogatory term originally. That's not a biblical term, Christianity. Um, the way was how people would often speak about following Jesus, which I think is quite helpful because it's not a label. It's descriptive of there's a following. There's a way that we actually follow Jesus. I find it quite helpful. We are followers of the way, the truth and uh, the life. And so he went about, and people rejected this message. And sometimes when you share Jesus, no matter how persuasively you share Jesus, you get to the point where people are no longer seeking. Have you ever had those discussions with friends? And it feels it's just, a, it's just about arguing. I've had some of those discussions. And sometimes you just have to say, okay, you know, I, I've, got, I've got to move on here. And you keep praying or something. So Paul does that. Paul left the synagogue, and he took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that the people throughout the province of Asia, the Roman province, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So this is a really fruitful time. The disciples are growing. People have heard the word of the Lord, but there's resistance to the gospel. And it gets kind of uh, more dynamic, if you like. Verse 11, God gave Paul power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. This is the power of God. I don't know what you view when we sing songs this morning like, God, you're powerful. God, you're strong. I don't know what comes to mind. For most of us in our culture, we probably don't think about demons being expelled or handkerchiefs healing people. Anyone think like that this morning? Some of us from other cultures do think like that. You know, because most of the world don't question the reality of these spiritual forces and God's power. Um, but in the West, we've been increasingly duped that it's just all in our minds. And actually, there's no demons and angels and supernatural. Hey, this is the birth of the church there. This can happen today. So you can be healed today. You can be delivered of various things today. Some of our stories in this room, hallelujah. So don't just read this as a historical record. <laughs> this is how God often works. And if it's creating a yearning in your heart, say, yes, Lord to it. You know, don't wait for the preach to end. Take hold of this even as we preach. And then verse 13 onwards, it says, a group of Jews were traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. Your translation might say a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists. What a job title. What a job description, itinerant Jewish exorcists. And they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, who was a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know this Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, attacked them with such violence that they fled from their house naked and battered. You do kind of want to chuckle, but it's also serious, isn't it? Thinking, I know Jesus, and we're not messing with him, and I know his people, Paul, I'm not going to mess with them. You guys are just using his name and thinking it's got power just as a religious tool. And, and, and it's quite dynamic. There's a lot going on in the birth of this church plant in its first few years. Would you agree? Who would leave church and never come back if some of that happened today? But we're happy to read it in the Bible. It's either the reality or it's not, you know, of what, what, what goes on. Um, and now, it doesn't all happen like this all the time, but God's powerful. And as a result, the story of what happened, verse 17, spread quickly as it would. Would that news spread in Colchester? If that was going on. All through Ephesus, to Jews and Greeks alike, a solemn fear descended on the city. And the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored because of the power and the freedom people were having and how even the spiritual forces were revering Jesus. 
Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. When you get saved in that environment, I don't think it's a half-hearted decision. You know, you've got to make a decision. Who's, who's Lord of my life? A number of them who had been practicing sorcery bought their incantation books and burned them at the public bonfire. So there was, this, there was this bonfire where people who had got saved out of something into this new life in Christ came and they burnt their bridges. They didn't add Jesus into their life and carry on. They, they left an old life and they started to follow Jesus. And for them, they literally burnt their stuff. Now, I tried to do this when I was at school. I went to a boarding school in Zimbabwe, and you know, sometimes in our zealot days, I wasn't the most gracious young Christian. I was a finger-point legalist, and sometimes we'd go to a prayer meeting on a Friday, and then we'd go knock on uh, the study doors of, uh, I think I was 16, all these people, and we'd say, you've got to burn your stuff, and you've got to turn to Jesus, and we'd collect all their stuff, and it ended up being a little fire, okay, but we, we burnt it. Um, uh, but the next day, they just got more posters, uh, you know, and more tapes because there was no life in it. You know, we were just trying to, but, but this is, this is a total change of heart. This is people who think, man, I, I don't like the things I liked before. Do you know, I need to leave that behind because I have a new Lord and I love him and I want to honor him. And it's a total change in their lives. So they bought, and some of the things that they're getting rid of and destroying were these silver effigies to the goddess Artemis, and you know, throwing them into the fire, however they got rid of them, they were millions. This is very costly. It wasn't an easy, oh, let me take it nicely and make sure I keep everything I want and tack on to Jesus. <laughs> now, this was a costly, he's either Lord or he's not, and I'm leaving behind this thing and I'm following Jesus, and obviously this called a stir, and there was a guy called Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made all his money selling these silver statues, and so he started to get worried that the economy was being affected by Christians' decisions as to what to spend their money on. It's provoking. And so he gets together all his, his, his mates in that business, and um, he calls them together, and he says, since our wealth is made from this business, we have to deal with this chap, Paul who has persuaded many that handmade gods are not really gods at all. Okay, um, And he says, and it's not just for financial business, it's also because of Artemis' reputation. So he's playing the sides now, isn't he? So he, he gets these people whipped up, he stirs up their anger because they're losing money, ultimately. And uh, there's this, this, this riot across the city. He gets them to go around shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And uh, it filled the city. And this, from the preaching of the gospel, in power, was started with 12 believers and Paul who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's caused a riot in the city. And so what happens to them is that their new identity, being in Christ, as we'll see through the series, has set them on a collision course with the culture they live in. Sound familiar? Feel like as a Christian you're on a collision course with the culture around you. Now, it doesn't mean that there's nothing good in the culture. You know, the devil doesn't create stuff. He just corrupts it. God creates is beautiful, but we end up corrupting it. But their identity had set them on a collision course with their culture. Their Christian identity has put them at odds with the prevailing culture. And Paul writes to them in the midst of this kind of environment, you know, years, years later, but some of it's still going on. And he's helping them work out who they are. Who am I? Am I an Ephesian? Am I an Artemis? Am I a Christian? And if I'm a Christian, how do I live in this world? Because I'm still in Ephesus. It's still going on. 
and I still have connections with people in my old life, how as a new person do I live in this still old place? Do you ask that question? How now as a Christian should I live? How now as a Christian should I act in my business place? How now as a Christian should I handle my time? How now as a Christian should I deal with my money? How now as a Christian do I handle my relationships? How now as a Christian do I honor my parents? How now as a Christian do I obey and submit to authorities that aren't very perfect? That's a question we need to be asking all the time. It's because Christ is our Lord. What would God have me do? How do I do this now? And so Paul writes to them and helps them understand, you know, the phrase in the world but not of it. How you be in the city but not of it. Because you're a new person. You've totally come out of it. How do you love the city? How do you dwell in the city? How do you engage with the city? But how do you be distinct from the city as a friend, well, not a friend, but someone I listen to, Alan Frau, says it. How do you leave behind the old life, become someone totally new, and live this life out? And some of us need this because in our Christian life, we're utterly frustrated. Well, why am I not tasting the fullness of God? Why am I not living? Why, why don't I have this peace that I hear about? <laughs> why, where's this joy that I, you know, where's this fullness? And, and there could be multiple reasons for that. But one of them is often because we carry on our life and we add Jesus in. I'm not sure that's following Jesus. That's not surrendering our lives to him. And we wonder why my life tacked on with Jesus isn't leading to this fruitful life Jesus promised. That's because Jesus says you leave all behind and you follow me. Because his way is the only way. Now, there are other reasons, but in my pastoral experience, a lot of the time people are not enjoying the truths of what we hear with God. And it's a journey. It's wonderful to hear that there's always more to learn. But it's because we're holding on to an old life. It doesn't fit anymore with the new heart within us. And so we live with this tension all the time. So this is the context Paul is writing to, to help them. And so we live in a pluralistic society. We live at a time where there are many truths. If you feel it's true, it's true. Have you heard that language? If it's true for you, it's true for me. Well, there's, there's either truth or there's not. You know, we live, in, we live in this kind of society. But Christian belief and Christian conviction and Christian life and the way of Jesus is at increasingly at odds with the society around us. We say there is truth. We say there is male and there is female. We say that marriage is between a man and a woman. And that's the context for sexual union. Right? We say that there is forgiveness and reconciliation, not just cancelling. That's a big one increasingly in our society, isn't it? You make a mistake, you're cancelled. No, no, we say there's forgiveness and there's restitution and there's reconciliation. We say there is right and wrong. So we are living increasingly at odds with the society around us. And we can think, oh no, <laughs> this is just a challenge, but it's also a great opportunity. I mean, look what happened in Ephesus. People left behind. It cost them millions, but they left it behind because the name of the Lord Jesus was being greatly honored. So you know, you listen to these statistics at the UK or England, I can't remember the research, it's no longer a Christian nation. And people are like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sh sure it's been a Christian nation by in reality, with over 50% of people being Christians for a long time now. You know, I think we, we, we live in the overflow of, I'm British, I'm a Christian. You know, that's when we travel elsewhere to minister. People say, oh, you're from England. Are you born into a Christian family? Well, no. And increasingly, people are totally unchurched. 
If you speak to someone under the age of 20 and you think they probably know the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, many people these have no Christian foundation, whatever. So they have no baggage either. You know? No Christian religious baggage. They've got lots of other stuff, obviously, like the rest of us. So I think this distinction is a great opportunity because the ways of the world will leave a thirst. They will leave a hunger. They will leave a yearning for truth and integrity and peace and joy. They will leave a, we can see it in the debates in politics over various things. There's such diversity and changing opinions week in, week out because the world is longing for some concrete truth and stability. And guess where we find it? In the Bible. And I think as people came, as Paul preached in Ephesus, and he preached about God and forgiveness and mercy and love and power and overflowing joy, people are like, I've been following Artemis for a long time, and that hasn't happened. It's just emptied my bank account, and I have to polish a statue every week. Or something like that. I, I think whatever our equivalent is, there is a yearning in the world for the ways of Jesus. But opportunity, but you and I are way more shaped by culture than we realize. Way more. So one of the joys of being in an increasingly diverse and multicultural church is you spend time with people from other cultures, you walk away thinking, the whole world doesn't think like that. <laughs> you know, we can think like, so I was having dinner with our children the other night and we were talking about things and I just, you know, so I said, do you realize most of the people in the world don't think like that? You know, you've got your millions in the East, China and India alone. Very different worldview to us. And our children are like, ah, oh, but it's what we're taught. Yes, that's what you talk because you live in a certain society and culture. And for them, just the, the little growing, I mean, it's not fully understanding that people view the world very differently to us. And we're not talking about flat earth stuff, you know, there's some, there's some flat earthers and it cost him millions of pounds. Did you see it in the news recently? Because he discovered through his own research that the world wasn't as flat as he thought. And I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about values and the way you view the world. And all of us have it. You know, so again, when in Croatia, well, you have to be careful of when you go to a different culture, when you're preaching the Bible and principles, you've got to be careful not to say, do it like we do. Because <laughs> we do it in a way that fits our culture, and we interpret it, and some of that, that's good, that's natural, because, you know, we live by the clock, don't we? Many other cultures don't have time management, they have energy management. If we're energetic, we just keep going. And when we're tired, we'll sleep. We'll bring the kids with us, and they'll sleep on the floor. Yeah? Different, different cultures do things differently. But when it comes, we, we are more shaped by the world than we realize. And as a result, the things that Paul addresses in Ephesians are going to be super helpful for us if we let them. And I think there's three key threads that I just want to draw attention to that we find in verse 1. So identities, can you say identity? identity. Purpose and belonging. So Paul writes to these Ephesians. They've got a new identity. They've left their whole life, which is all about this Artemis. Now it's all about Jesus. So where do they belong? In the city, in this world, in the Christian community. Where, where, where do I belong? And what's my purpose now? I've been caught up into a different story. What's my purpose? So identity is the question, who am I? So turn to the person next to you and say, who am I? <laughs> Careful what answer you give. You can tell. Um, belonging is the where do I belong? So say, where do I belong? And then thirdly, the purpose. What am I living for? Say to the person, what are you living for? There you go. 
Interesting questions. We can generally answer them instinctively, but when you spend time on them, it's really helpful. So the first one, and I'll just introduce them because the series will unpack directly and indirectly some of them. Do you notice how Paul introduces himself? I don't know what strikes you when you read verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of the... He doesn't start with a title, does he? He doesn't say, Apostle Paul. No? And if you read through the other letters, when Paul introduces himself, he starts like this. His name... And then his posture of servanthood in relation to Jesus. And then when he writes others, he says, Paul, Silas, Timothy, whoever it is, he says, servants of God. He doesn't start with this grand title, pastor, prophet. I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong. But he just says, Paul. And people would have known what that meant. It would have meant, I was the guy who used to persecute Christians and oversee their stoning. And I was called Saul, but I'm Paul. I'm a new man. In Jesus. You know? It's not my rabbinical heritage that I'm leading with. It's not my calling from God, even. as a title that I'm leading with. I'm leading with who I am. I'm Paul. And yes, he goes on and says, I'm an apostle, but of. <laughs> I'm a servant of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And look how he calls the Ephesians. He calls them saints. Can you say saints? saints. And he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful. Say faithful. faithful. It's not that they're perfect. Surely not. Would you agree? Are you perfect? No. no. Are you a saint? Yes. Good. Oh, hallelujah. Well, the, you, know, you know the phrase, I'm a sinner, but hey, God saved me. No, that's not true. It's true that you sin, but you're a saint. That's the identity that we're given when we're born again into the family of God. I am a saint. As Morris, uh, who I was traveling with, says, the world is lucky to have us. Not in some arrogant way, but hey, we're the light of the world. Christ's in us. His aroma is coming through us. Is there something true about that? I'm a saint. So this is Paul. And for many of us, we've had various labels on our life. You're a failure. You're a reject. You're an orphan. Praying for more adoptions in the church. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You're a loner. You're boring. You're useless. You're ugly. And we've all had these things said over us. And if you're mature enough, you think, I know that's not who I am, but we carry it, don't we? Yeah? When, we, we, when you become a Christian, God gives you a whole new set of names that we'll be unpacking. Saint, beloved, precious child, son, daughter, royalty, prince and princesses. You think, oh, these are nice names. Nice, no, no, no. They are robust theological truths that fill our hearts with this. With these things. But the problem is we try to carve out our identities and all sorts of things, don't we? Our career, our approval, being able to speak about the latest news. So I went through a phase where I thought I wasn't any good if I couldn't like quote all the newspaper headlines and have a conversation with people about elite things like politics and philosophy. That's just not particularly me. You know, I'm talking about football and nature and Jesus. We're, we're not football, sport. Football's okay. You know, we carve out our identities in our bank balance, in, in our fashion Fashion trends, being able to, at school, talk about the latest fashion. That's a big deal for young people, particularly girls. You know, we, we carve out our identity in so, so many church groupings. I mean, even where we associate ourselves with church, what we don't say and what we do say in our name, evangelical, reformed, charismatic, Pentecost, you know, we can form, carve our identity out of all of these things. And not all of them are bad, but they're insufficient for what we're made for insufficient, invalid ID for where we're going. 
So, you know, you travel and you go on the aeroplane and uh, maybe there was a time you could use your just photo ID, but now you need your passport um, to travel um, from this country more and more often. But, you know, you can give a bill and you say, it's got my name and and he has a picture. Or you can give give a driver's license or something. No, insufficient ID. What do you need to travel? You You need a passport that's stamped with your citizenship that shows that you're a citizen of this nation and you have permission to go there. If you carve your identity out of anything else other than being in Christ, it's insufficient for what God's called you to. And you will not be able to go there. And you will wonder, why why are there these blockages? Why are there these frustrations? Because we're trying to move into something and take hold of something, but we have invalid ID. It's insufficient ID. You know, we we, we take on responsibility and it crushes us because approval was our ID card, not being in Christ. Or we do really well, but we have a failure and we're utterly finished. Not just disappointed. Why? Because my identity was in doing that. I have a relationship. It falls apart and I need to stop it. And I don't don't know who I am anymore. Because my identity is in that person. In having this invalid ID. See, where God has called us to, our identity needs to be in Christ. I mean, I don't know where to cry or laugh at this, but... um, Aware of time, so I'll be quick. In 2015, more people died of selfie deaths than shark attacks. <laughs> You're like, I'm not sure whether you should laugh at that. Um, uh, and there's, I, th- I think that the stats carried on for a few years. You know, people posing for the perfect selfie on the Taj Mahal and tumbling down the steps or walking into the middle of a road to get big traf- fast traffic or on the edge of a cliff to get a selfie or on some crane Selfie deaths, trying to capture the best possible image that will attract the most number of viewers. Anyone ever got hurt taking a selfie like that? No, don't tell, don't tell them. Um, and this week, another, this is me trying to be culturally savvy, okay? This week, another K-pop star from South Korea. Any K-pops, K- K-pop fans in the room? It's okay, put your hands up. You see what I mean? Under 22s. See ya? I'm in, I'm in with you guys. Yeah, so. um, but seriously, another... Another K-pop star took their life at a very young age. How many celebrities do we hear of of suicide? 5,000 deaths by suicide in 2021 here in our nation. 75% of them are men. Because men, we've been told to put our identity in all sorts of stuff. And we get to the mid-age or whatever it is, and we think, who am I? My, My cousin's husband took his life three, four years ago. Everything shiny on the outside. No one knows what was going on. But he was crushed by something. And the only way out he saw was to take his life. Identities carved out in anything else other than in Jesus are insufficient ID. Could someone tell the kids we'll be about five or ten minutes later? That's okay. Don't worry, everyone. We'll finish soon. It's all about who you are in Christ. And so if you find this yearning, you think, I know this is true and I'm grappling with it, this series will be a blessing to you. It's not about what's been done to you, but what Jesus has done for you. You're not what you have done, but what Jesus has done for you. What you do does not determine who you are, but rather who you are in Christ determines what you do. Not my quotes from others. So saints. But then secondly, belonging. Where do I belong? What would Paul say to this? I belong in God's family. Do you see how he introduces it? He says, God our Father. (laughs) You know, our Pay attention to that word. Paul locates himself consistently in our language. The Lord's Prayer. Our, now, there's nothing wrong with playing my father. You know, it's personal. 
and this, but, but we underestimate the belonging that God has for us. So I'm Hugh Pierce in Christ. I'm no longer Hugh Pierce. I have a new, different lineage, right? So obviously, biologically, I'm still Hugh Pierce, but, but I died to an old life, and I've risen and now raised with Christ. And so the family of God now is my first and eternal family. And um, that doesn't mean, obviously, I dismiss biology. You know, you know what I'm not saying. But there's a new belonging in us. God is the head of a household that stands right across their nations. I won't steal this person's preach, but Ephesians 2.19, it says, So now you are Gentiles, no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with God's holy peoples. You are members of God's family. So no matter what you do or don't do, you are valued. Spiritual realities that you add by being part of our family. That's the spiritual reality. You're a member of the household of God. No matter what you do or don't do, in part. But it does flow into various things. And then purpose. What am I living for? I wonder how you would answer that question. What are you living for? Have you ever done one of those reverse engineering exercises? You know, you imagine the end of your life and you're in the funeral setting. What is it you want people to say of you? What do you want people to read out about? Have you ever done that exercise? In my world, you're told to always think about these things and work back in your life. So you think, at the end of my life, what would be success and fruitfulness for me? What am I living for? What do I want the eulogy to be at the end of my life about? And then you work back and you set your life on that trajectory. You know? So what is it we are living for? To make the most of this life, we need to know that. Uh, some of you would know the Einstein story. Einstein was on a train once, and uh, the conductor was coming looking for tickets, and he saw Einstein struggling around. I, I think this is true. If not, it still makes a point. He was struggling around looking for uh, his ticket, and the conductor says, okay, sir, I know who you are. And the guy says, thank you, and he walks away, and Einstein's still looking for his ticket, and the guy comes back and says, sir, it's all right, sir. I know who you are. And the guy says, yes, I know who I am, but I have no idea where I'm going. Because um, it was on his ticket. So he's looking. You know, I, you know, I think sometimes we forget that's part of it. What has God called us to? Paul would say, I'm living for God's purpose and plan. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God has a will. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Purposefully made and given a purpose. In God, and we'll be unpacking. I mean, it's really hard to just do an introduction and unpack these things, um, but we're going to be unpacking them. Um, I think because of time, it would be good to just pray. Is that okay? So, I just want us to pause for a moment um, and just let the paint dry on some of these things in our hearts. And uh, just going to invite the Holy Spirit to just put His finger at our hearts on things that He wants to encourage us into, speak to us. Some of us would have felt things you think, Whoa, it's a bit close to the bone. I need to. I know I need to leave things behind. But I've been dragging them with me. And some of you need to today just make that decision. Leave some things behind from an old life. It says elsewhere in Scripture, let us throw off things that hinder us and sin which entangles us. We're good at talking about sin, but sometimes there's just stuff that's neither right nor wrong, but it's a hindrance. To us, um, something there's voices even in your head now about your identity. I can't. 
and not. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us in the powerful tenderness of your glory. And as we raise our defenses, help us, Holy Spirit, to surrender afresh to you. And I want to ask you, Lord, in this, in this series, for every man and woman here, that we would walk out the other end clear on who we are in Christ, clear where we belong, put into a family, adopted with a father and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and caught up in the purposes of God, not fitting his story into mine, but fitting my story into his. Would you do that amongst us, Lord? I just, in the next moment, would you just say yes to the Lord in those things if you, if you want to respond to the Lord? So Lord, as we go now, I ask Lord for our children and youth, not even in the room, but doing similar stuff, and for us to immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. May we be a securer, more unified, and more fruitful people as a result. In Jesus' name, everybody said...